0: All right, I want us to start this morning by considering a question. Don't answer this out loud. Just think in your mind. Does life go better with Christ? Does life go better with Christ? I've heard a number of testimonies, maybe you have as well, that seem to make it sound like becoming a Christian makes life easier. I read of one uh, NFL quarterback who directly attributed a winning record to praying to receive Christ early that year. Uh, Earlier this year, I watched an interview with an unnamed American rapper who may or may not also be running for president. (laughs) Claimed that God in his favor gave him a $68 million tax return. I have a whole nother sermon for that right there, but, right? But he turned his life around and God gave him $68 million. Maybe you've heard someone say something like that before, or at least offer, right? If you come and follow Jesus, right? your relationships will be better. Your, your job will get better. Your career will go more smoothly. Life will just coast along in the right direction if you follow Jesus. It seems that, especially in our country and in the West, many of our descriptions of the good Christian life are more representative of living the American dream in the pursuit of health and prosperity and comfort rather than the biblical pattern of following Jesus into the face of opposition. Now, this is not to say that God doesn't bless us with earthly things. Please don't mishear me there. The, James, the brother of Jesus, tells us right, that every good and perfect gift is from the Father above. Right? But Jesus is crystal clear in the passages that we just read and that we're going to dive into this morning that following him automatically means a life of opposition and persecution. So we have to come to grips with that. And we're in this part of the Gospel of John, we've been here the last few weeks, called the Farewell Discourse, chapters 14 through 16. And these are Jesus, his public ministry has ended, and now these are his final words to his 12, then Judas is left now 11, disciples before he goes to the cross. So he'll be, he'll be arrested just a few hours from now. And so far he is encouraging the troubled disciples, right? He's encouraged them with the the promised reality of the Holy Spirit that's going to come. That's a main thrust of these chapters. He's encouraged them with the future reality of heaven, presence with the Father. And then last week we saw that he's encouraged the disciples, that if they live and abide by faith in Jesus, they will flourish. They will live a life of obedience. And now, as we come to the end of this discourse, he is telling them in a brutally honest way, also, if you abide in me, you will suffer. You will face persecution. So, does life go better with Christ? Well, yes, in one sense, and no, right? And I I think Jesus sums up the idea of these passages that we've just read in the very last verse, chapter 16, verse 33. This acts as sort of a thesis statement for Jesus' teaching on persecution. Listen to what he says. In the world, you will have tribulation, right? Life will be tough if you follow me. It will not go better. But take heart, I have overcome the world. But if you follow me, life in the end will go tremendously better because I win. That's how Jesus answers that question. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. See, Jesus doesn't want his disciples and he doesn't want any of us to be caught off guard or surprised when we experience opposition as Christians. He wants us to be ready and willing to suffer for his sake. And that's the aim of his words this morning. And as we walk through this passage, we're going to draw, there's a lot of text here, right? We want to draw out two simple practical points. The first is expect opposition. That's number one. And the second is take heart. You'll have tribulation. Expect opposition. Second, take heart. Be of good courage. I have overcome the world. Now, if that sounds like a short two-point sermon, I have three sub-points for each one. Right, so it's really a six-point sermon. That's a preacher trick. Anyways, let's jump in. All right, number one, expect opposition. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, let's stop right there. If the world hates you. Now, we got to ask, who is the you here? Who's he talking to? Remember, we just said this. The, the immediate audience is Jesus' disciples. They're soon going to become apostles after Jesus dies, raises from the dead, ascends into heaven. And immediately, in the book of Acts, we see this hatred of them flesh out, right? As the church begins, the apostles are preaching the gospel, and there is an intense opposition from Jewish authorities. And they are directly opposed by the same men who oppose and put Jesus on the cross. So the direct audience is the disciples. But there is a reality here that's true for every follower of Jesus all throughout history. In fact, we see this in the book of Acts, right? When we come to the first martyr, the first person to die for the cause of Christ, it's a man who is not an apostle, it's a man named Stephen. He was a servant of the church. And then persecution breaks out from that moment on, Acts chapter 8, and the disciples scatter. And they're not just persecuting the apostles, but everybody who bears the name of Christ. We see this all throughout church history all the way down to today. So we can't just say, okay, Jesus is just talking to the apostles here. To follow Jesus in every day and age is to invite opposition. The Apostle Paul puts it plainly in 2 Timothy 3.12. This is a good verse to memorize. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will be opposed. The Apostle John later writes in 1 John 3, 13, Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. Jesus is talking to all of us here. And we also have to ask, what does he mean by the world? The world hates you. Well, he's referring to this created moral order that's in active rebellion against God. So that doesn't mean that every single person in the world will always hate God. We know that to be true because the disciples were called out of the world. We are here this morning as those who have been called out of the world. Nor does it mean that the the weight and intensity of persecution will always be full force. It ebbs and flows in different cultures, under different governments, in different times throughout history. But Jesus is essentially just making it very clear to us that if you follow me, this rebellious world, that's opposed to God and opposed to me, will will oppose you. Expect opposition. Plain and simple. Now, he doesn't just leave it here, say, hey, this is coming. He gives us reasons why we should expect opposition. I want to point out three here. So the first reason to expect opposition is this. The world hated Jesus. Second part of verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me. It has hated me before it hated you. Now, this is something that we've seen clearly in the Gospel of John so far. We've seen it in all the Gospels. There is this increasing, from from day one, this increasing opposition from the religious leaders against Jesus. right? His claim of divinity, his claim of authority, coupled with his willingness to call out self-righteousness and sin in the religious leaders, puts a target on his back from day one. And their anger and hatred toward him grows and grows and grows and grows until just a few moments after these words, he's going to be arrested, tried, and crucified. And Jesus knows this. He's well aware of this. He told us back in John chapter 7, verse 7, he says, The world, it, the world hates me. Why? Because I testify about it that its works are evil. Now, just by a show of hands, raise your hand if you like being told, Hey, your works are evil and you're an enemy of God. That's like a conversation stopper, right? No, no one enjoys that. But Jesus is saying, listen, if you attach yourself to me, you are identifying yourself with me and I with you, and you are declaring the same truth. They're going to hate you just like they hated me. Now, confession time. There are two baseball teams that I despise, right? Who wants to guess the first one? Yankees, Yankees right? That's just part of the culture here. You all hate them too, okay? Despise, sorry, hate's a strong word. The other one, and this is time sensitive, it's just going to take a while. Sorry, Cass. It's the Houston Astros, okay? Now, if you don't know anything about baseball, just think, Yankees, bullies, Astros, cheaters. That's all you need to know, right? And so here's, here's what happens, and yes, I'm bitter about the Red Sox being terrible right now, but that's a side note. Here's what happens in my heart, right? This confession time. If I'm in public and I see someone wearing Yankees gear or Astros gear, I am tempted to immediately make a judgment about them, right? Then, I, then the Holy Spirit's like, how silly is that? It's a baseball team. And then I move on and we hug. Not really because social distancing, right? But But what what am I doing in my mind? You see, it's a humorous or facetious example, but when you put that hat on, right, you are identifying yourself with a team. And so you're inviting, whatever that team represents, you're inviting all of the responses that are are tied with that. You see, when you abide in Christ, last week, John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17, and you bear much fruit, you are putting on the Team Jesus jersey. And you are inviting all of the responses from the world that Jesus received. You are inviting that upon yourself. You're identified with him. So Jesus says, when they hate you, don't be surprised. They hated me as well. We should expect the world to react to us the same way it reacted to him. That's the first reason to expect opposition. The world hated Jesus. Number two, the second reason is is this. Verse 19, you are not of this world. If you were of the world, Jesus says, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you are a Christian, if you've repented from your, of your sins, turned and believed in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, his sufficient work on the cross and empty grave, your citizenship is no longer of this world. You were once of this world, But not anymore. Here's here's the contrast that the Apostle Paul describes in Galatians chapter 2, one of the greatest gospel summary passages. He says, And you were, this is of the world, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what it means to be a part of this world. But listen to what comes next. And friend, if you have not believed the gospel, this is what is offered to you today. Paul goes on, verse 4, Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him where? In the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying? Your citizenship was of here, but in the grace and mercy of God, your citizenship is now in heaven, Christian. You're here now. Yes, you're still here, but you're here on a, on a work visa. You don't have full citizenship here, and you're not here on a vacation either. You're here as an ambassador of the King of Kings. As the author of Hebrews says, Hebrews thirteen fourteen. we have no lasting city here, but we seek the city that is to come. So we have to ask ourselves, do you live at a, as a citizen of this world or as a citizen of heaven? Citizens of this world find no hope beyond this world. They live only to enjoy earthly comforts, to avoid difficulty as much as possible, to exalt self and ignore God. But here's the thing, citizens of this world are simply living out their citizenship. It shouldn't surprise us when people who are not Christians act like they're not Christians. They're being consistent. Here's the deeper question we who profess faith need to ask this morning. Are we claiming heavenly citizenship while living as if this world is our home? This is, I believe, one of the greatest temptations that faces you and I, that faces American Christianity. We are so in love with our comforts that when the slightest threat of opposition arises, we cave. Right? On one end of the spectrum, because we like spectrums and we like putting people left or right, don't we? And on one end, we strive for the approval of culture so much that we refuse to speak clearly against sin, whether it's a biblical sexual ethic or whether it's the lives of the unborn or whether it's against racism or whatever it may be, those issues that tend to invite opposition. Words like sin and wrath make us feel icky and they may cost us a friendship, so we retreat and reserve them to the comforts of private religion because no one's opposed to private religion. On the other end of the spectrum, we've created this civil religion that has tried to lump Christianity so close with a a political party and is happy to use Jesus and use God's word as a prop for its own self-interest while completely ignoring the Bible's clear teaching. And to all of this, Jesus says, listen, you are not of this world. So friend, if you feel like as you read the scriptures and as you seek to obey Christ and as you abide in him, if you feel uncomfortable and marginalized because of your obedience to Jesus, good. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. You and I are here not to fit comfortably in the world's categories that try to hijack Jesus for its own self-interest. We're here to lovingly bring the ultimate comfort of the gospel to our lost and dying neighbors. This world is not our home. Therefore, we should expect opposition as we obey Jesus. And then third reason to expect opposition. Verse 20, you're a servant of Christ. Jesus says, remember the word I said to you, and he goes back to chapter 13, verse 6, after washing the disciples' feet and giving the greatest example of servitude other than the cross itself. He says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will, keep, they will also keep yours. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a German Lutheran pastor and theologian. And he came to America to study theology as the Nazi party was on the rise. He was tempted to stay here once he got to New York. He loved it. There there was safety here. There was comfort. But as he was praying, and you can read his journals, he was struggling. He felt like God was calling him back to Germany. And he knew, right, into the lion's den to take a stand for biblical Christianity and to take a stand against a wicked government. So he returned to Germany. He founded an underground seminary and he trained pastors who refused to be influenced by the Nazi-controlled state church. He was eventually arrested, then executed just two weeks before the camp he was in was liberated at the end of the war in 1945. And he wrote a book that ended up being prophetic for his own life called The Cost of Discipleship. It's a Wonderful book. I commend it to you. But listen to what he says here about suffering. He says, Suffering is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Luther, he's talking about Martin Luther, the reformer, reckons suffering among the marks of the true church. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. Why? Because we're servants of Jesus, who was a sufferer. See, the logic is simple here. The world opposed Jesus, and he's called us out of the world to be his servants who identify with him. Therefore, the world will oppose us also. Now, before we move on to what it means to take heart in the midst of this, we do need to consider what, what might this opposition look like for us? We're told very clearly what it looks like for the disciples in chapter 16, verse 2. If you read on there, it says, They will put you out of the synagogues. This happens in the book of Acts. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. That's what it looked like for them. But what about for us? And let me just state the obvious here. We still have it pretty good as Christians in our country. Okay. Now, yes, we've got to be honest, there have been, if you, if you go back and read and study, there have been increasing lawsuits and fines against Christian organizations in recent years. Professors have lost tenure. Some Christians in public office have been treated unfairly, and this should concern us. This is not to say that our nation is fine or immune to this, or we as Christians are. We should engage and respond where, where necessary and be realistic about the fact that there seems to be a rising tide of opposing what we proclaim from this book. And there may very well be a day where to stand up and declare God's truth is legally labeled as hate speech. That's, that's all true, very true. But we still have it pretty good. You know how I know? Because you're all here right now and we're doing this. And we're not afraid that anyone's going to kick in the door and arrest us. It's a gift from God that we can do what we're doing right now. Man, if you're like me, Oh, I so take this for granted. There are brothers and sisters in Christ around the world in places like North Korea and Afghanistan who live in constant fear of imprisonment or death for doing this right now. And we came here with not a concern in the world. Praise God for that. So what does it look like for us then? Well, at the present time, it will mostly look like reviling Mocking, being labeled as a fool, losing a friendship, ostracizing yourself from your family. You you may lose a job, depending on the scenario. But in short, friends, the, the world thinks we as Christians are foolish, stupid, backwoods people. To be ignored at best. And the question we have to ask in those scenarios, whatever it looks like for you, as you imagine your context, are you willing to be counted a fool for the sake of Christ and for the good of your neighbor? Because that's what it's going to take. Nobody opposes private religion. Oh, you say Jesus is Lord? That's great. Good for you. No one's opposed to that. But then when you say, no, 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 I'm not saying Jesus is Lord. I'm saying Jesus alone is Lord. Therefore, what you worship is a false god. That's when we invite opposition and in being seen as foolish. Are we willing to do that? And friends, let's not take this for granted. This should The freedoms we have should embolden us to take advantage of this for the sake of the gospel and for the good of our neighbor. It's a blessing that God has given us. Now, Jesus goes on to say in verse 4, I've said these things to you, chapter 16, that when their hour comes, you may remember them. Remember that I told them to you. So Jesus is telling us, listen, it might be great now, but do not be surprised when the hour comes. Be ready. You're not of this world. They hated me and you're my servants. Therefore, in this world, you will have tribulation. Now, if you're the disciples here, this is like a downer message big time. Right? So thankfully, Jesus doesn't just leave it at that. He goes on to give encouragements during this time. That leads us to number two. So number one, expect opposition. Point number two, take heart. Take heart. Right? That thesis statement on Jesus teaching on persecution, 1633. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And that phrase, take heart, can also be translated: be courageous, take courage. Be of good cheer. And remember, this is a section in John where Jesus is encouraging the troubled hearts of their disciples. So the aim is to encourage here. He's not trying to crush them. And the same is true for us. Yes, you'll face opposition. You'll face persecution if you, if you live obediently to Christ. Even hatred. But even in this, there are so many reasons to be courageous and to stand firm. Okay, And the greatest reason, we've actually already addressed. Pastor Clint, two weeks ago, Looked at the the uh, farewell discourse, teaching on the Holy Spirit. That's the greatest reason that we can take heart in the midst of opposition. Because we who believe in Christ are filled with the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, what Jesus is doing is he's giving more reasons why we who are filled with the Spirit can take courage in the face of opposition from the world. First reason to take heart in the face of opposition. You have access to solid joy. You have access to solid joy. Now, in verses 16 through 19, the disciples are confused because Jesus says, I'm going to leave soon, and then I'm going to come back. And they have no idea what he's talking about. He's saying, I'm going to go to the cross soon, and, but you're going to see me again. So he fleshes out this meaning because they're confused in verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So he's saying the world world is going to rejoice. Why? Because it'll look like I am defeated on the cross. But you will then be overjoyed when I'm raised from the dead and you realize that I win. So this has immediate fulfillment for the disciples as they witness the death and resurrection of Jesus. But it also is a reality for us today, isn't it? When it looks like evil is winning and God's people are, are facing opposition, when it looks like life is getting worse, it may feel like there's no reason to have joy as a Christian in this world because of opposition and persecution and hatred. But friends, Jesus is risen. Life is profoundly better when Jesus is king. He's pointing them to the future resurrection and he's pointing us back. And guess what? There's coming a day when Jesus will return again and wipe away every tear and every suffering and every sense of death and pain will just be a memory. And he's saying that reality of the risen and returning king is meant to give you joy here and now in the face of opposition. He then gives a a timeless illustration of childbirth to help us understand this. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, I've never given birth. I feel like I probably didn't need to say that. As it came out of my mouth, I'm like, that's, I feel like that's obvious, but in case you're wondering, I've never given birth. I was birthed, uh, and I weighed 10 pounds, 12 ounces. So my mom gets this verse from Jesus right here, right? I, I have also witnessed my wonderful, amazing wife give birth to six large babies. And it, and it usually goes like this, right? Lots of pain for mom, yelling, hand-squeezing, I didn't know you were that strong, kind of hand squeezing, more yelling. And then the baby is born, and those tears of pain become what? Immediate tears of joy. There is new life right here in our hands. And Jesus is saying, listen, the hour of my death to his disciples, it's going to be agonizing for you. But when I defeat sin and death and rise from the dead, you will have access to an immovable, solid joy because you are redeemed by God. And that joy will put steel in your spine so that you will be able to face all of the opposition throughout this life into eternity. Let me just give you one example of this for these very men who are cowering in fear right now. In the book of Acts, after Jesus dies, is buried, raises from the dead, ascends into heaven, they receive the Holy Spirit, The apostles are arrested for boldly declaring the gospel, Acts chapter 5. And listen to this, verse 40, it says, And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, here's a key word, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. You see that? The resurrected Jesus instilled a deep rejoicing and joy in these disciples, so that even when opposition came, they rejoiced. Not in the punishment itself. Don't misread this. They weren't gluttons for punishment. Some people, in the name of Christ, seem to be chasing persecution. They're always looking for a fight. And then they say, oh, I'm persecuted. And it's like, well, you're not being persecuted. You're just kind of obnoxious, right? They weren't persecuted for obnoxious personalities. They were persecuted for the sake of the gospel. The cross was the offense. And so their joy wasn't in the actual pain, but in the fact that they were identified with Jesus. They said, Jesus told us this was gonna happen and we are in him And we can obediently live for him and glorify him because guess what? They can't take away what matters most to us, namely our salvation. I imagine the disciples in Acts chapter 5 recalling the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Why would they be blessed? Which means happy. Verse 12. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus secured for the apostles, and it secures for us the joy of knowing and being reconciled to God and being filled with his spirit, and nothing, not persecution, not ridicule, not even death can take that away. So we move forward joyously and boldly proclaiming the gospel in the face of opposition. And Jesus goes on to tell us If this joy seems absent to you as a Christian, he says, pray for it. I wish we had more time to dig into verse 24, but this is in the context of suffering. Listen to what he says. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Meaning the disciples didn't pray to the Father in the name of Jesus because Jesus was right there. But now, Jesus is about to be crucified and risen. Now we pray in the name of Jesus. So he says, listen, when your heart's troubled as you're facing this... Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. You see, when we, we call out to him in prayer, we have the joy of knowing his presence, watching him answer prayers as he works his purposes in this world, even in the midst of unexplainable and painful opposition. Right? So that's the first reason to take heart. We have access to solid joy. Second, the Father loves you. Father loves you. Look at verse 25. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you'll ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. This is so simple, friends, but it is so profound because we tend to think, I'm this way as well, we tend to think that when we face opposition, it's an automatic sign that God doesn't love us. We think, what's wrong? Now, surely the disciples were wrestling with this at this moment. In their confusion and discouragement, they're saying, Jesus, you're telling us you're going to go die? You're going to leave us? And now you're saying, by the way, not only am I leaving, but you're going to be hated and persecuted? They're thinking, what's going on? So Jesus comes alongside and affirms the Father's love to them. Look at this. He says, I will tell you plainly about the Father. Then he says, he loves you. Did you catch that? Jesus is going to give a plain language explanation to his disciples about God the Father. And he does not tell them of his justice though he's just. He doesn't tell them of his sovereignty, though he is certainly sovereign. He doesn't tell them of his power, though he is the most powerful. But what does he want them and us to grasp in plain language about the Father? Verse 27, the Father loves you. And here's how you know the Father loves you. He has gone through great lengths to send Christ so that you can have direct access to him. He did that because he loves you. So when you face opposition and sorrow, do not doubt for a second the love of God. And if you do, look to the cross. So I'd ask, ask us plainly, do you believe that the Father loves you? And if you're tempted to think, well, I don't, I don't know. I, you don't know what I've done. I'm not sure that the Father can love me. Remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to 11 men. One of them has already bailed. He's talking to 11 men whom Jesus knows in just a few hours will leave him completely abandoned. They fail miserably. And Jesus looks them in the eye and he says, listen, I want want to tell you plainly about the Father. He loves you. He doesn't love you because of a good performance. He doesn't love you anymore because you did something great yesterday or this morning. He can't love you anymore. He loves you fully in Christ. He doesn't love you any less because of a poor performance. In fact, that only invites you in closer to his heart. And this is the encouraging word to his disciples. So don't doubt that God loves you. John Owen said, the greatest unkindness you can do to God the Father is not to believe that he loves you. Listen to what he says. He says, the more we see the love of God, the more we delight in him. Every other discovery of God without this will make the soul fly from him. But once the heart is taken up in the greatness of the Father's love, it cannot but be overpowered conquered and endeared to him. You hear that? Owen is saying, listen, don't be overcome by the opposition you face. In fact, be overcome, be overpowered, be conquered and endeared to the father who loves you. And you'll be able to stand firm and take heart in the face of opposition. Third reason to take heart. Jesus wins. This is my favorite, by the way. Jesus wins. Verse 32 of chapter 16, Behold, the hour is coming indeed. It has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. Verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Why? I have overcome the world. Friends, all of the the persecution, all of the opposition, all of the unbelief in your own heart, as you, like the disciples, fail on this front, all of these things are no match for King Jesus. He has overcome the world. We've already seen glimpses of this in this passage, right? If you look back at chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus says, if they hated you, they hate me. But he also says, listen, if they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. Meaning that even as the world persecutes us and hates us, Jesus is still in the business of rescuing sinners out of the world. As we go with the gospel, what good news it is to know that some will respond. That's why we're here. Jesus wins. Likewise, back in 15 verse 25, Jesus tells us that the crucifixion, The greatest act of opposition in the history of the world was a fulfillment of God's word. He quotes Psalm 69, meaning that even the death of Christ was a part of God's plan for salvation. Jesus wins. Do you know where, according to a number of studies, the church in the world is growing the fastest? Not America, not any Western nation, in places like Iran and China where there is blatant government opposition against Christianity. Sarah Zhang writes on this. She says, Protestant Christianity has been one of the fastest growing religions in China in recent years, rising from having just 3 million adherents in 1980 to as many as an estimated 100 million this year. I'm not good at math, but 3 million, 100 million. That's, that's a lot, right? Now, you can look at the reasons why. What are the mission strategies? What, how do they respond to government oppression? But here's the ultimate reason why because Jesus wins. He is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Friends, that should be an encouragement to us. As we walk through this life as gospel witnesses, we can take heart. Walking in joy and peace, even as we're opposed, lovingly displaying and declaring the gospel to a world in desperate need of Him. And when opposition comes, we take heart. So recap real quick, and then we'll bring it to a close. Expect opposition. They hated Jesus. You're not of this world, and you're His servant. And take heart. You have access to solid joy. The Father loves you in Jesus wins. And I want to close and just give you three very practical questions as you seek to apply this to your own life. First one is this. Would you be worth persecuting? Does your life and do your words reflect a distinct mark of Christianity, so much so that others would notice and may oppose you? Or are you so at home in this world that you just simply blend in? Would you be worth persecuting? Number two, are you grounded in God's word so that you're ready when it comes? You realize what this is, right? Jesus says, I've told you these words. I've given you words so that you're ready when it comes. In the same way, God has given us his word so we're not not surprised and we know how to properly respond in the face of opposition. Are you grounded in God's word so that you're ready when opposition comes? And then number three, will you bear witness this week and how? Will you lovingly, winsomely, boldly display and declare Jesus this week? Pray pray about it. Plan for it. Prepare. Be intentional. We, the church, we are God's plan for bringing salvation for those who do not yet believe. Then I want to close by just reading you this reflection from Pastor J.C. Ryle as he considers the words of Jesus here. He says, Let us lean back our souls on these comfortable words, and take courage. The storms of trial and persecution may sometimes beat heavily on us, but let them only drive us closer to Christ. The sorrows and losses and crosses and disappointments of our life may often make us feel sorely cast down, but let them only make us tighten our hold on Christ. Armed with this very promise, let us under every cross come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us often say to our souls, why are you cast down and why are you disturbed? And let us often say to our gracious master, Lord, did not you say, be of good cheer? Lord, do have as you have said and cheer us to the end. Let's pray together.